Worshipful living requires wonderful thinking. I think it was the first Wednesday night in December, Derek asked a friend of his to come and speak to the youth. Uh, Steve is his name, has a, a wonderful testimony, but he also has no arms. His arms from his elbows down on both sides are, have been amputated because of an accident he endured. And, and he said something really cool. He said that I'd rather be three quarters of a man with a whole heart than a whole man with a fractured heart. Isn't that a good line? And such trust in God to be able to say that. And, and I, I mean, I just believe that he meant it. There was just such sincerity. But as he talked about his past, a very evil past, a lot of sin and immorality, not maybe unlike some of our own stories, Steve said something that stuck with me. He said, looking back now, I realize that my problem wasn't merely a sin problem, it was a thinking problem. It was a problem with my thinking What I wanted and what I thought was good, what I thought was desirable, what I thought could get me through the hardship. He he admitted to feeling lots of loneliness, lots of sadness, lots of anger, and so he self-medicated with alcohol. It was a problem with thinking, thinking that alcohol could help him instead of turning To the Father of lights who gives only perfect gifts. And so what I want us to see this morning is that wrong behavior comes from wrong thinking. Sin is not merely a sin problem. It is a thinking problem. How often do we as Christians or maybe you in your life have thought that Christianity is just a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. You can't have any fun. That's what Christianity is. It's tiptoeing around, making sure you don't step out of line and tick God off. Right? Have you felt that way? That's why a lot of people don't come to Christ. It's why they stay away from Christianity. Did you know that Christianity... Yeah, there are some things the Bible tells us not to do. That is for sure. But more than don'ts, Christianity is a bunch of do's. It's a bunch of haves. It is a bunch of privileges. And and here's the illustration. To my kids, when I tell them not to do something, and Karis has started saying, you never let me have any fun. You never let me do anything. You never let me have anything. She's such a drama queen. I didn't say it. (laughs) Anyway, so, as I have told my kids, the no's that I tell them are just a protection so that they can get what's best. And when the Bible tells us no, when it says don't do this, it's God protecting us so that we might be able to take what is best from Him. To get the best. Don't take this so that you can have this. It's a problem with thinking. 
He tells us no so that we don't settle for the refuse of the world. When it comes to the junk that will hurt us, God says stay away so he can give us the things that will satisfy us forever. But how do we know what the privileges are? How do we know what the benefits and rewards and blessings of obedience are if we don't know his word? If we don't know what God says to us, how do we know what God expects of us if we aren't thinking with his perspective? How do we know how to conduct ourselves if we aren't thinking with his perspective? We come to a situation, which is the right way to act? If we don't know what God thinks about it, then we don't know. I don't know how you feel about Rick Warren, and regardless of how you feel about him, he was doing an interview interview with Larry King Live one night, and, and Larry King was asking him about hell. And he said, so you're saying that if someone's not a Christian, that all other religions, all of those people, go to hell. And I loved Rick Warren's answer. He said, no, Larry, it's not what I say. It's what God's word says. It's not a sin problem only. It's also a thinking problem. We must think as God thinks. We must see and know from his perspective And how do you know truth if you aren't focused on his perspective, on his mind? How are we protected from legalistic thinking? From thinking that Christianity is just a bunch of don'ts and I've got to toll the line or God's going to zap me and I've got to do this and do that. You know, legalism is a very comfortable place to live. Did you know that? As long as I do this and I don't do this, then I can think what I want, I can say what I want. As long as I live within these bounds, then I can do whatever I want. It's a very comfortable place to live. But legalism removes the relational aspect of Christianity. And God does not honor that. But how are we protected from thinking that way if we don't have God's perspective? Or the other extreme How are we protected from a relative and relaxed view of sin? If we don't think like God. Of course, we can't trust our own consciences or convictions. Because those are far too relative and and far too impacted by our subjective circumstances and experiences. We need something more wonderful than ourselves and our and more wonderful than our own thinking, something outside of ourselves, something objective and timeless to set our minds on so that we will live in such a way that honors God, so that we will live worshipfully. Worshipful living requires wonderful thinking. And wonderful thinking is God's perspective on everything. Therefore, set your minds on things above. 
Colossians 3, 2 to 3 says the exact same thing. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Not just because God commands it, but so that we can live in such a way that honors him. So that we can live in such a way where we are positioned to receive all of the benefits, all of the privileges that God promises when we live in obedience. It is good to walk in the ways of the Lord. It is very good. But we cannot do that if our minds are not set on things above. What does that mean, though? How do we do that? Well, we move to the third point. Wonderful thinking is the result of God's transformational wording, His Word. Wonderful thinking is the result of God's transformational wording, His Word. Now, when it comes to being influenced in, in our lives, and we're all influenced by something, we, we talk about free will, and, and yes, we are free agents, we have real choices, but there is no true, absolute free will. And, and before you get too worked up, let me explain what I mean by that. True, absolute free will is the ability to make a decision without any kind of outside influence. And we are all influenced by something. We are all motivated by desires. We are all moved by circumstances. We are all impacted by those around us. Oftentimes, too often, we are where we've come from. Our environment has shaped us and made us. We are all influenced by something. There are two main sources of influence. We can name all the, the specifics, but there are two main sources of influence. This world and God's word. And, and the question before all of us today is which will we listen to, the world or the word? And, and this is what Paul is pointing us to in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the inference there is the renewal of your mind by God's Word. Now, he doesn't say that, but he infers it. For he says to renew your thinking. Now, I want to focus in on that word, renew. Renew your thinking. Renewal infers something different, something other than what has been. Now, how can we think different? Does it come from thinking like the world? Is thinking like the world different than what has been? No, for that's how we already think apart from Christ. Thinking like the world comes very naturally for us because we've been of the world. We've been there. We've thought like that. 
It's the old sinful nature, and it's a habitual, natural thing for us. So thinking sinfully or worldly is not a renewal of thinking. It's not a new thinking. It's the same old thinking. It's business as usual for the human race. It's status quo. It's not renewed thinking. It's repeated thinking. So thinking like the world is not a renewed thinking. So what is it then? Well, renewed thinking must mean something other than worldly thinking. It must be otherworldly thinking. It must infer heavenly thinking. And the only way to think in a heavenly way is to have a heavenly view. And if we are to have a heavenly view, we must see the heart and mind of God. And and where do we get that? Where do we see the heart and mind of God? Can I can I go down to the 7-Eleven and and buy a pack of the heart and mind of God? Can I can I go out to the woods and and collect some some dirt and some tree bark and see the heart and mind of God? Can I go to the school textbooks and find the heart and mind of God? Can I read the latest how-to book on how to be successful or how to have the life you've always dreamed or whatever and find the heart and mind of God? No, where do I find the heart and the mind of God? The only place to get it is in His Word. The Bible, Scripture. Through God's Word, we have a front row seat to the person of God Himself. Now, God is invisible. The Bible tells us that very clearly. He is unknowable unless He reveals Himself to us. The good news is is that God has revealed Himself. Both through His written Word and through the living Word, His Son, Jesus Christ. But we don't have Christ in the flesh now. We learn of Him here. God has given us His Word so that we might see Him and know Him. And in seeing Him, we might become like Him. A.W. Tozer said, Beholding is becoming. And that's at the heart of what Paul is telling us here. We don't study the Bible for study's sake. We don't read it merely to know the words on the pages or have the, the verses in your head. We don't read it to know words but to know God Himself. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this before, but I want you to hear this this morning. Bible study is intended to be a romance between you and God. Did you know that? It's for relationship. And relationship is only grown in an increased knowledge and understanding of a person. If... If you want to be my friend, I want to be your friend. That's great. But we can't become really good friends unless we hang out, spend time together, get to know each other. You get to know me, my interests, my thoughts, my opinions. And you begin to understand who I am as a person. And that's what we do when we go to God's word. We're going to know a person, the person of God. The Holy Spirit. The Son and the Father. 
And as we come to know him, we are transformed to be like him. This is the renewal of the mind which Paul is speaking. Katie and I lived in Tennessee for about 10 years. She actually lived there about a year and a half more than I did. And about two years ago, actually it was before that, every so often a little southern twang would come out of her mouth. She began to pick up the southern accent as we lived in that place and were immersed in in how they talked. And I'm sure I've done it too. I don't notice it as much as I've noticed it in her. But but you pick that up. And, And this is no less true with our spiritual lives. The more time we spend in and around the world, the more we are conformed to it. But the more time we spend in relationship with God through His Word and through other spiritual disciplines, the more we are transformed into His likeness. And isn't that the goal? To be like Jesus. To live like Jesus. To think like Jesus. To make decisions like Jesus. Remember the bracelet? Remember? WWJD? If you had your WWJD bracelet, that was it. You were good. Well, in closing, I want to give you two necessary spiritual transformations that every Christian must have. Two necessary spiritual transformations, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about transformation. Being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now, the first transformation is salvation itself, or what you might call regeneration. It's the once-for-all transformation by the gospel, which is God's Word. Once again, transformation by the Word of God. Romans 1.16, a very familiar verse, says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or Romans 10.17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of God. Christ. And so we first must speak of the transformation from spiritual death to spiritual life, which only the gospel can bring. God's word. It's the renewal. It's the transformation by the word of God. And it begins with salvation. It goes through the rest of your life. And my friends, you cannot worship God. And therefore, please him if you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, a trusting believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot please Him. Unbelievers cannot worship God. They cannot please Him or offer Him anything acceptable until they have offered them or offered Him their lives as living sacrifices. Salvation is the first transformation which must occur in your life. It is by grace through faith. So before we go anywhere else, I have to know Have you trusted Him? Have you forfeited your life into His care? If not, what are you waiting for? He hung on a cross so that you could be acceptable. So that you could be accepted by His Father. And now He stands still with open arms waiting to lovingly receive you into His grace. He wants to transform you from spiritual death to spiritual life. From judgment to blessing and reward. 
He wants to make you wholly accepted by His Father. And if you do not accept that offer, you cannot be holy and acceptable to Him. That's the first transformation. The second one is the continual transformation of sanctification by God's Word. We must be transformed daily by the washing of the Word of God. How many times a week do you take a shower? I don't, you don't have to answer out loud. I, I, take one, I take one once a month whether I need it or not, I promise. No, I take one every day, I do. If, if I can, I, 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 in fact, I can't function until I've taken a shower. I just, I, I feel gross. I don't feel awake. And, and then you take the shower and you're awake and you're ready to go. But how often in a week do you take a shower? How about in a week or in a month or in a year? Now, you probably take at least a couple of showers every week. Whether, whether you get in the shower, whether you just wash your hands, you bathe yourself in one form or fashion during the week. Somehow you do that. Because our flesh gets dirty, it gets grimy throughout the course of the day. We touch things, we do things, we work hard, we perspire, and so we say, I need to wash off. I mean, at, at least we get smelly. At most we can get sick and die. If we haven't washed. In fact, in the 14th century A.D., you may have heard of the Black Plague. In Europe, one third of the people died from the bubonic plague. And they realized later that it was the fleas from the rats that were spreading the disease. And do you know what the answer to the plague? They could have stopped it very easily. Do you know what it was? It was to take a bath. Their sanitary or unsanitary practices and their lack of good hygiene is what caused this disease to spread and what caused so many people to die. The simple cure was to take a bath. Simply washing off was the answer to a serious health problem. Transforming their level of cleanliness through washing was the answer for being healthy. And the answer... Or the question is asked again, how often do you clean yourself up with God's word? How often do you allow its cleansing effect to wash over you by immersing yourself in it? As important as physical cleanliness is, spiritual cleanliness is all the more important. Your life depends on it, first in regeneration and then in sanctification as you walk with the Lord. Just as the daily routines can soil our physical body, so our minds get soiled by what we see and hear through what we experience and participate in. Now first, we must do what we can to avoid the dirt of sin, to avoid the the dirt of the world. We must flee from temptation, have no appearance of evil, the Bible says. Renew your thinking about what you choose to do and how you choose to live. But sometimes there's dirt, spiritual dirt of the world that we cannot avoid. As, as much as we seek to, 
to not be of this world. My friends, we are still in this world. In fact, we are called to be in the world. And because we are in it, we will not be able to protect ourselves from every filthy thing the devil hurls our way. And this doesn't mean that we can't avoid sin in our life. By the Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus, we are given the authority and the power to say no to sin. But what I mean is this, the filth of the world and the messiness of sin in others' lives, even when our hands and hearts are clean and pure, will spill into our lives if we are ministering to the world as we ought. In fact, ministry is messy. Our life may not be a pigsty, but we might have to get knee-deep in it when we go to minister to others, when we walk into their messy lives to love them and to minister to them and share the gospel with them. Loving others is a messy practice. And you will get dirty. We must reject the sin, but we go after the sinner. And did you know that sinners are messy? My nephew, Henry, he's 18 months old. And I forget exactly when it was. It was the first day on our cruise. I do remember. We were out by the pool. I had my swimming trunks on and my my dry fast shirt on. And I'd only taken two of those shirts because I figured we'd just be around the pool most of the time. And Katie said, here, you take Henry. So I took him. And then she said, yeah, I've got I've to get a diaper ready because he he's a dirty diaper and he needs to be changed. Well, she didn't tell me that before I took him. And it's okay, baby. I love you and I forgive you. <laughs> but when I gave him back and he was really dirty, for the rest of the morning I realized that everywhere I went there was a weird smell. And when I got back to the room and I took my shirt off, I thought, this shirt smells. And I smelled where he had been and the dirt had spilled over onto my shirt. And so I washed my shirt to get it clean, hung it up, it dried, and the rest of the trip was fine. But did you know that loving others can be a messy practice? We can get dirty when we love and minister to others. And, and if, if, if you need an example, just ask Jesus how messy it was to love us. He had everything. I mean, he had it made. He was in heaven where everything was clean and perfect and pure and good. And the Father said, I want you to go down there where it's dirty. I want you to involve yourselves in their messy lives. I want you to be bruised and scarred. Because of their sin. It was messy for our Savior to love us. And it will be messy for us when we go to the world. And so, because of that, once again, back to the illustration of Jesus. What did Jesus do often? Very, very often. He got alone with the Father. He got alone with His Father's Word and in prayer to spend time to be cleansed. By the word. So that every day when he went out to minister and he got in the dirt, the filth, the muck, the mire, he went back and he washed off with his father's words and his father's presence so that he could go back out the next day clean and pure to minister again. 
Jesus immersed himself in the muck and mire of humanity so that he might, as Ephesians 5.26 says, sanctify his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. But in order to help her get clean, he had to get dirty. He never sinned, mind you, but he had to get involved in our messy lives. And so his priority was to get alone with the Father often with his word and get clean. My friends, is that your priority? First and foremost, to make sure every day you washed off with the word of God. Let me end with this story. In 1818, Ignaz Philip Samuelweis was born into a world where sanitation and cleanliness was not known. The understanding of, of bacteria and infection hadn't been discovered yet. And in the finest hospitals of that time, one out of every six young mothers died as they gave birth. And it was because a doctor's practice was to go to the dissecting room first to perform autopsies on the children and the mothers who had died the day before to try to learn as much as he could. And then from there, he would go to the birthing rooms to help the mothers in their delivery. But between, he would not wash his hands or clean off the messiness from the previous place he'd been. And because of that, infection was spread and mothers and children died. Dr. Samwise, though, was one of the first to realize that if you washed your hands, it's the, the, the number of deaths decreased significantly. He used, to, he used a, a mixture of chlorine and water to wash his hands before every delivery. And in his practice, out of 8,537 babies, he only lost 184 mothers. That's about 1 in 50. Significantly different than the other doctors. And so he spent much of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues the importance of simply washing their hands. The surprising fact, though, and the sad fact is that virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives alike had been doing it the same way for thousands of years, and they didn't see any need of changing. And Dr. Semmelweis died at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of thousands of women ringing in his ears. Before he died at one particular, con- particular convention, he was speaking to some of his colleagues and he said this. Preparal fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I am not asking anything world shaking. I am asking you only to wash. For God's sake, wash your hands. Church, I'm not asking anything great of you this morning. I'm not telling you anything novel or new. I'm not asking you to go to a foreign country and uh, die for the sake of the gospel, although Christ may call you to that. But what I am calling you today, what Paul is calling you today is to wash yourselves in the word of God for his sake. Be washed by his word.
And I end with these two questions. Have you been transformed by the gospel first and foremost? Have you been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior? And then, are you being cleansed daily by the washing of God's word?